welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. So when I graduated from university, uh, myself and two of my girlfriends decided that we wanted to backpack around Europe for, you know, just over a month or so. I don't know if you've ever done this, but it was just an incredible trip. We traveled through Italy and Austria and Germany and Switzerland. We hit France and, um, and Spain, and it was just amazing. And very early on on this trip, we coined a phrase that we ended up using actually pretty regularly. And to this day, these girls are still my friends and will use this term we came up with. We would say at various points throughout this trip, my eyes are full. <laughs> it's kind of a silly thing to say, but we didn't know how to describe how overwhelmed we were with how beautiful, how huge, how different the things were that we were experiencing. Um, the best example was in Switzerland when we would be in the mountains and you were seeing all of these things that were so beautiful I'd never seen before. And it would almost like make us freeze in place. Like I was speechless a lot, which is strange for me. And we would, the only way I could think of describing it was my eyes were so full of the beauty and majesty around me. And other times, Our eyes were so full, it was exhausting and frustrating. Sometimes we'd be in art galleries and we hadn't even hit half of the stuff. And we were like, what about you? My eyes are full. You? Yeah, because we couldn't tell anymore what we liked or what we didn't like. I mean, we're no art experts. So after a while, you see Mary and Jesus and Mary and Jesus. That's if you're in Italy. (laughs) And your eyes are just too full of all this stuff you can't take in anymore. And in fact, it made it impossible to tell what we liked and what we didn't like, what was beautiful and what was just kind of weird. And so that was the term that we kind of used all the time. Have you ever felt like that? (laughs) Have your eyes ever felt too full? overwhelmed to the point that you kind of either froze in place, maybe because of beauty or maybe because you were afraid? Or have your eyes been too full that you can't actually discern like what the next move is, what right from wrong or true or false is? (laughs) Why am I telling you all of this? Why am I sharing our silly little inside jokes with all of you? (laughs) Well, it's because I think actually this state of overwhelm is everywhere right now. Like an eye full of too many masterpieces, it can be hard to tell um, what is most meaningful for you when you're taking in too much information. And actually worse, when the stakes are high and you need to make a decision, all the information and expectations and stress um, can like pile on you and it can make you feel frozen in place or worse, (laughs) you can make some bad decisions. You know, as a family ministry pastor, that's what I do here at The Well, amongst some other things, and a mom. Um, I actually have two kids who are are teenagers now. Um, I see this state of overwhelm more than ever. I see it in our kids. I see it in the people I work with. I see it in parents. The truth is we have so much information, don't we, moms and dads? There are studies and books and courses and support groups. We have sleep training for our littles and sleep doulas even. As our kids get older, we'll have um, IEPs. Those are individual education plans and behavioral diagnoses. And we track physical physical milestones and fine motor skills. Um, And we do all these things to track and test to make sure our kids are on track. We do sports and music and art and training and camps because we want our kids to be well-rounded and social. (laughs) 
We put timers on our screens and filters on our, on our programming, and we carefully choose our words to be encouraging and not discouraging because we don't want to um, like criticize or hinder our kids' um, confidence. And then you throw in a pandemic. And the trauma and isolation of um, being alone and being fearful, wondering um, really complex issues like to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, to mask or not to mask. These are all really difficult decisions that we've been wrestling with. And we often feel like we're failing. We're overwhelmed to the point of not knowing how to move forward. You know, the news stations and stats aren't helping us either. You can read in the paper all about how our kids are more depressed and anxious than ever. Our young adults are ill-equipped and not resilient. We're reading about inflation and jobs and how no one's ever going to be able to afford to own a home anymore. It's actually rather depressing. I think I have a shot of one of the headlines I woke up to just the other day, and it said, the pandemic has brought out the worst in people, pulled Canadians apart, survey suggests. Good morning. <laughs> it's everywhere, isn't it? Parents, your eyes are full. Aunties and uncles, your ears are full. Friends and family, your minds are full. We have so much information. And you're, if you're here today or you're watching online and you're not a parent and you're tempted to just kind of tune me out or even feel disappointed that you came today. Can I just stop you for a second and tell you why this matters to you? Why this is actually super important? For the next three weeks, we're actually going to be talking about the next generation. Um, you're going to be hearing from people who actually work with people in this age group. The next generation has been called Generation Z. I'm Canadian. I will call it Generation Z. They, other people call it Generation Z. But this is from the years of uh, kids that are born between 1999 and 2015. So if you can't do the math quickly, those are about 7 to 23-year-olds. And so before I go any further, if you are at our Bol Bolton or King City or Vaughn site, I'd just like you to take a look around the room. And you, I know for sure, will see people in that age category. Perhaps some of them have just left to go to a class that's been specifically designed for them. Others of them may have led you in worship today. Or maybe they're actually running the media so that you can even see me. Others are maybe sitting in your row or in your family. The point is that if you are at the well, if you call the well your church, then actually people from that generation are in your family. And so they're worth knowing about. They're worth listening to. I'm going to tell you a few things about Generation Z. The first thing is they're going to be the first generation to grow up not remembering a time without the internet. They've always been able to Google answers for everything. That also means that this generation um, spends about six and a half hours online a day. Now, before you get all judgy about that, how many hours do you think you spend online a day? The point of this isn't, oh man, they're on their phones too much. It's that, wow, the world has changed. Their socialization, their schooling, a lot of their jobs are actually online now. So this changes things for them. Three out of five people in this age category would describe themselves as stressed out. Can I remind you that seven to 23-year-olds? That means a good number of our kids and tweens and teens would say they're stressed out. And actually worse than that, 25% would say that they are lonely. Finally, 9% of this age group, 9% of seven to 23-year-olds attend church regularly. Nine out of 100 people in this age category would go to church once every four to six weeks. Church, 
at the well, about 30% of our population is made up of people in Generation Z. 30%. This is a gift to us, church. These are our people. We have people, actually a good number of our people are in Generation Z, and they are a gift to us. We have a special calling. This is unique about our church, to love and to lead and to pour into this next generation. So I hope you're excited by this. And lean in today and in the weeks to come. They're worth it. Now, finally, like I was mentioning, we're coming out of one of the most traumatic global events in our collective memories. And we've been given all sorts of conflicting information and expert ideas from our, from doctors and from politicians and from our friends and family. And we know we need to move forward, but this sheer volume of information is making it hard. And also, not to mention, there's a steep incline, right? Like now all of a sudden they're saying we can go back to normal and it is happening quickly. That can feel overwhelming. How do we keep from either freezing up <laughs> or, not, or, or making poor decisions? How do we filter what we see and listen to so that we can discern good from bad, <laughs> true from false? The philosopher Goethe said, um, the things which matter most must never be at the mercy of the things which matter least. I'll say it one more time. The things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. Really what that means is first things first. I think what we need to do to be able to filter out, to stop um, being overwhelmed, is to actually um, move forward with a posture of first things first. It's prioritizing, really. If it's true that first things need to be first, as parents, we need to figure out what those first things are. And then secondly, once we determine that, then how is it that we parent and help and lead and live with that kind of a posture? I'm sure you've heard this concept before, this first things first, but the harder part is choosing which things come first. And how do we determine that? I'm not the expert on it, but actually I know who is. God. We get to actually go to his word together and figure out priorities with his help. But before we go into our scripture today, I just want to set some ground rules here. I want you to know, first and foremost, parents and, and caregivers and just everyone, that I actually, too, believe in studies and science and strategies and systems and reading about how to parent well in the next generation. I believe all of that information is probably a good thing. <laughs> and actually, I believe in you, parents. I honestly cannot believe how intentional and purposeful you are. I have watched you navigate like such a difficult season with grace and humility in most cases. And I know that you are trying really hard. I get it, I'm doing it with you. I'm trying my best as well. And I know that you are concerned and desperate to do right by your kids. But I also believe that your eyes and your ears and your hearts are too full. I think all the information, whether it's popping up on your phone like it does on mine or you're reading books, is actually paralyzing you as parents. You're actually missing out on some of the joy of parenting and often are overthinking things or maybe making decisions out of fear. And so I, my hope today, my prayer for today is that I'm going to help like 
set you free a little bit in your parenting journey just by sharing what I think God wants our first things to be. I am hoping that this message and the things that I kind of suggest for you today will actually help simplify your life a little bit more and make you be able to move forward in a bit more freedom when it comes to, um, to parenting your kids and your teens and your tweens. And so with that, we're actually going to dive into scripture. And so I'm going to call our, um, our scripture reader up uh, to do that today. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. So just to give you a bit of background about this passage, the Apostle Paul, who was kind of the first international worker, um, he wrote this letter to the Church of Colossae. And they were a young church that was um, just trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And they were being, being given all sorts of advice and actually conflicting ideas. And it was actually overwhelming them. They were confused. And they were forgetting about the first things. And so Paul wrote this letter with that in mind. He was trying to remind them of the truth that maybe they already knew, but how to prioritize how to follow Jesus, how to live. Um, well, actually what he said here is how to live a life worthy of the Lord. So what does that even mean? Um, if the goal is to live a life worthy of the Lord, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it's actually simpler than we think. I think it just means how to live a worthwhile life. And so if you don't follow Jesus, maybe you're here today and you haven't chosen to follow Jesus or you're just trying to check out this thing, this still applies to you because I think we all want to live a worthwhile life, don't we? Yeah, like what does that even mean? Well, to me, I think whether it was 2000 years ago when Paul was writing this letter or today, the words that we would use to describe a worthwhile life are words like, kindness and generosity, and love, the kind of stuff you want to hear said about you at your funeral, that would make a worthwhile life. And so this is what Paul's reminding them. Okay, guys, you know the truth. You know that you've been called to follow Jesus, to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please him in every way. Here's how to do it. And he lists four different things um, that I think are keys, are first things for us as we move forward in our own lives, trying to live a worthwhile life and to raise our kids to live worthwhile lives as well. And so um, these four things are actually like listed separately, but a lot of times in biblical writing, um, they would, when there was a list, there would be like the first thing was like the most important thing. And then the other things listed kind of supported that, that first thing. You following me? So here are the four things he says. We heard it together. It said, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with his power according to his glorious might so that you can have endurance and patience. We're going to talk about that. And giving thanks to the Father. So it sounds to me, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, growing in endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks. Those are the first things. So 
Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how, um, if we're, if our goal is to live a worthwhile life, how do we bear fruit in every good work? Now, the temptation when you hear the word work is to think of a vocation, like something kind of like really like humanitarian or, or, or selfless. And that actually isn't it. Actually, when they're talking about work in this, think of it more like a plant. Think about like when he says bearing fruit, think about like we're going into spring, right? And so all the trees and, and flowers and everything that's happening is like bursting forth with all sorts of deliciousness to nourish us and to actually like uh, make the world more beautiful and then actually to propagate the, the world. Like, uh, like the fruit has seeds in it, right? And it falls to the ground and then there's more trees that bear fruit. That's actually the calling on our lives. We're meant to make the world a more beautiful, a more healthy, um, we're supposed to nourish the, the world around us and to reproduce other fruit-bearing entities. All those little kids are actually supposed to bear fruit later too. Our existence is meant to benefit society. That's what bearing fruit in every good work is. And so it's not actually tied to your vocation. It's more tied to the words you speak, the behavior, like how you live your life, the activities you do, and certainly how you approach your work are all ways that we bear fruit in every good work. This is um, like a value of a social awareness and maturity that our role in society is actually a part of a much bigger story. That we're not supposed to, to live just focused on ourselves. We're actually meant to make the world a more beautiful, a more healthy, a better place. And it's never too early to start teaching our kids about this. Littles can know that their actions affect those around them. They may not understand their role in the, in the grander world. I mean, I think we're all still trying to figure that out, but they can figure it out in their homes, how what they do can either hurt or help those around them, that they can take ownership for what they do. And actually, this is kind of the stuff, these, these milestones that we're talking about are so important. We, we probably know adults who don't seem to figure out how what they do affects others. And so we want to establish this in our kids from like the youngest age. We're actually going to be talking about these kinds of social milestones in our parent summit, but I'm going to tell you more about that later. So how do we establish these milestones in our kids? If we know this is a first thing, if we know that bearing fruit in every good work is a first thing, how do we do that in our kids? Well, I think that answer is actually in the second point. Remember how I said it was a list? The next thing says that we're to grow in the knowledge of God. God is the one who makes it so that we can bear good fruit. We can't do it on our own. We need him. And so we've been called to know him more. You know, when I, a few years ago, I got to travel to the United Arab Emirates. Um, that's like Dubai and Abu Dhabi. We got to travel around there and we got to actually um, tour one of the largest mosques, I think in the world. It was so beautiful. It was covered in marble. Um, it was gigantic. Honestly, I don't think I've ever been somewhere so large. And so we um, went into one of the sanctuaries. Um, it was the sanctuary where the men gathered to, to worship um, because men and women worship separately there um, in, in Islam. And so we were in this room and on the one wall, I think there's a picture there for you. There's all these, um, like, it's like a mosaic tile with all different Arabic writing. And our, our host, our guide told us that those were all the names of God, of Allah. And he was, you know, pointing out and actually telling us what some of the names were. And then quite obviously there was one tile that was, was blank. It was kind of above the middle one. And 
of course, you would notice that when there's all these names. And so we asked, why is that one blank? And it, he said, well, actually, the final name of God is a mystery. Only the camels know it. Of course, that's silly. They know the camels don't know the name. The point is, is that it's impossible. They believe that it is impossible to fully know God. And for us, <laughs> who, who left there that day, you know, we were Christians. And we were just overwhelmed with this, like, I don't know, just immense gratitude that we followed a God who wants to be fully known. In fact, he wanted it so much that he sent his own son to take on flesh and to live amongst us, to live and to lead us, to, to teach us and to have fun with us and eventually to actually die for us and rise again. That's the God we know. He wants to know us and he wants us to know him. So this is not um, a surprise that a first thing is to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow closer to him, to build our life on him, to understand that who we are is inextricably linked to who he made us to be. So if talking to God and listening to him if learning and reading his word and actively participating and engaging with God's people at church or at youth group or at day camps isn't a part of your parenting strategy, then I would argue that there are some second things that have been creeping into your family's life. I mean, the truth is, we all know that there are non-negotiables in our lives. We, we know this, if you've ever shopped for a house, you talk to a realtor, he, he wants to know first and foremost, what are your non-negotiables? What has to be in that house? Um, well, that's the same as our lives, right? We have non-negotiables in our lives. Have you ever thought about it like that? Have you ever like, you know, sat down to think about, okay, what are some things I'm not willing to compromise on? If we don't make spiritual growth a non-negotiable, a first thing in our lives, then we remove it from that list and we raise other things into the, that priority. And so to give a personal example, I'm, I'm going to share some stuff, some things that Reuben, my husband and I have wrestled with as we've parented. You know, there's always risk in this. I'm going to be honest. I feel like sometimes when you share personal examples, um, people can hear it as like a directive, something that they should do as well. And that is not what I'm saying. I'm just going to tell you about our thought process, how we've wrestled with different things and determined what our non-negotiables are in our family. And it doesn't mean that we are doing it perfectly. Please know that I am in the trenches with you. I am still doing this. I often joke, I don't know how things are going. I'm not finished yet. And so I hope that you will listen to this and not um, like feel any kind of combin, uh, con, uh, condemnation or, or um, judgment, but instead that you would listen to it with open ears and, and hear it as something that could actually um, start conversations between um, you as parents, um, as caregivers, whatever role you have in your life. But um, one of the things that we learned pretty easy on was that boundaries were really easy when kids were little, but as they got older, more and more things were happening. And so we had to kind of go, okay, wait, what are we going to be involved in? What are we going to be, how are we going to be spending our time? And so one of the things that we decided was that going to church on Sundays together was a non-negotiable for our family. That was fine to say when they were three or five, but then as our kids got older and got part-time jobs and started playing sports and getting involved in other activities, this became a whole lot harder. Um, it, with sports in general, it's really hard to guard Sundays. Maybe lots of you have your kids in sports. And so, um, we decided when, when that started happening and higher level sports started to come, we knew we couldn't do anything about games and tournaments on Sundays. It's just part of playing sports. But one thing we could do is we could not commit to a team 
that would have a practice regularly on a Sunday. We just wanted to guard that. We knew there were going to be games. So at the very least, if there wasn't games, we wanted to be able to go to church together. And so that meant some really hard conversations. We used to have to call coaches and say, like, look, at we're, if we're going to be on that team, we can't, we can't practice on Sundays. And so there was a cost in that for us. Um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't perfect. Our kids still miss um, church for sports, for jobs. Like this happens at times. It isn't working itself out perfectly for us. But what we were worried about was if we committed to something else on a Sunday, what was that actually saying to our kids and to our coaches and to our friends? Have you ever thought about what you're, what you're saying without even saying it? I think Pastor Vijay has said to us before, we, we don't really have to tell our values to people. People see it. We live them out. And so what we realized we would be saying by allowing something else to be scheduled during a, um, something that was so important to us was that we actually thought practice was as important as, as our relationship with God. And that isn't what we were saying. We didn't believe that. Um, have you ever thought about the things that you schedule on a Sunday? Um, maybe it's not practice. Maybe that's not it. Maybe it's like a family dinner or a chore that really could be done on a Saturday or a Friday or, or some other time, but you allow it to take the place of, of gathering together um, with your family to worship. I don't know if that works for you. I'm just asking the question because for us, we hope that by making this boundary, we would be establishing our belief in our kids that our hope and identity is not in a sport or a job, but it's actually in Jesus. I hope that that's what they're getting from this. I, I'm not exactly sure. Like I said, I'm still parenting. We're still working this out. But one cool thing that did happen was my, my daughter's um, part-time job that she's had now for a little while, right from the get-go, she told them that on Sundays, she needed to be finished by three o'clock because church in King City is at four and their shifts are always over at five or six. And so that was a risk for her, actually. Um, but the cool thing was, is that they've honored it. They always just let her off early so that she can come to church on Sunday. And so we feel really grateful about that. So I don't think you need to be afraid of setting boundaries. I think um, hopefully what I've done is at least empower you to think through those kind of things and, and be willing to have those conversations with your kids or your coaches or whoever it is um, that you want to talk to about that. Okay, so where are we? We've talked about bearing fruit in every good work through a deepening knowledge of God, but what is the fruit that we're hoping to produce? Well, Paul, the same international worker <laughs> that wrote the book, um, the letter to the Colossians, he wrote what kind of fruit we're going to be looking for to a church in Galatia a little bit um, earlier in, in our scriptures. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The kind of fruit that Paul says we're going to produce is actually what the world is so desperate for. Love, joy, peace. You want this, right? And in fact, in, our, in, in Paul's letter to um, the Colossians, he said that it was actually the fruit of endurance and patience that was going to be formed in us through the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Endurance and patience. These are important qualities, right? Why do we even need them? It's to get through hard things. And we all know we need to equip our kids, our youth, our young adults to be able to get through hard things. But guys, 
The only way to develop endurance and patience is to actually go through hard things. You can't do it apart from it. You, you don't have to, you, you don't become patient by never waiting for something, right? I think one of the ways we stunt our own emotional health and the emotional health of our kids is actually neglecting one of these first things by avoiding hard things at all costs. You know, we are a people that have become very risk averse. We play it safe with our kids a lot and helicopter around them. I know there's all the jokes about kids with helmets and how we used to bike without them. I think helmets are good, but you, you get the point. We often go into overdrive to manage and control everything when the qualities that are actually esteemed in people are only ever developed when we risk or fail or when we have difficulty or when we have to wait. How often do we th do things to avoid difficulty for ourselves and our loved ones? How often do we try to solve things on our own or manage and protect and work out by ourselves? Me? <laughs> Almost always. A couple of questions. Like instead of challenging our kids to ask God for help in persevering, how often do we swoop in and help? Or if your kid was being bothered at school um, by a friendship at school, not a bullying situation, like not danger, but just bothered relationship problems. Do you pray with them about it? <laughs> or do you just like disregard it completely? Or do you call the teacher to like get that situation fixed? When you're trying to make a hard decision, do you stop and quiet yourself and pray and listen? Or do you distract and avoid and worry? How do we learn to embrace the difficulty as a first thing that actually develops the fruit that we want the world to actually have to nourish them? How do we do that? The truth is, like I said, we're living this out in our own lives, learning to embrace difficulty and hardship. And often people don't know other people's stories. And so I'm going to share you a little, share with you a little bit about our family story. We're a family of four. We've had actually quite a lot of overwhelming things happen in our lives. You know, we're learning to see um, gift in difficulty and hardship, just like all of you. When I was expecting um, our second, um, our second child, at our 18-week ultrasound, um, we learned that he was going to be born with a cleft lip and palate. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this before. Um, essentially, it's a, a birth anomaly that happens when um, a baby's face isn't fully formed, and so there's often a gap in their lip and also a hole in the roof of their mouth. The, the roof of their mouth actually goes all the way to their nose. It's, it's pretty crazy. And actually, it's a pretty serious thing. It actually um, requires multiple surgeries to fix. It usually involves um, like hearing problems, speech problems, eating problems. Um, there's extensive dental work. It actually, like this kind of a, a birth anomaly affects all of the kid's life, really. And so I remember when we received that news, um, I left that ultrasound and I chose not to go back to the office. I hopped on the bus and got back to my home because I was so overwhelmed with what they had told me. Um, I didn't know how to make sense of it, to be honest. One of the appointments I left with that they really wanted us to hurry up and go to was a 3D ultrasound at Mount Sinai, which is a high-risk pregnancy center um, hospital here in Toronto, Ontario. And it was actually there that, we, um, that I learned what the word overwhelm really meant. 
we got to that um, ultrasound and they discovered actually another issue with our baby that actually indicated a more severe um, uh, birth defect that was called trisomy 13. Some of you may not know what that is. I hope you don't. Um, trisomy 13 is a um, problem with your 13th pair of chromosomes. And essentially, I think the stat is that 70% of babies with this die in utero, um, in, in the mom's tummy, and the other 30% die within the first six months of life. And so that day, sitting in front of a geneticist, we were given a death sentence for our baby. And I remember when she first said it, actually, like I only really remember her first words and then I just, I glazed over. <laughs> I couldn't take it. I, I, um, I remember my eyes and my ears and my brain feeling so full. They were handing me pamphlets and scheduling um, appointments and, and begging me to make different decisions and explaining everything that could possibly happen. And I just couldn't take any more of it. My, I, 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 I just, I was like a zombie. We just kind of left my husband and I on our own. We went home in a daze with such heavy hearts. I don't think I've ever felt that sad. <laughs> You know, I left with an appointment for an amniocentesis. I don't know if you know what that is. It's when they shove a big needle in a pregnant mom's uh, belly to take some of the amniotic fluid and do some testing on it. And I remember uh, Reuben and I just lying there in our bed um, with all sorts of questions swirling. How is this our life? How are we going to get through this? what was I going to say to people? I was actually um, expecting at a time when there's a whole bunch of people here at the church. A lot of my friends were expecting a baby too, and they were all having healthy babies. I just didn't know what to do with all of that, to be honest. I didn't know where to begin, and I didn't know, we didn't know what to do next. We were completely and utterly overwhelmed. And it was in the midst of that, actually, of the questions and tears and worries and prayers that we just had to stop. And after being completely spent by Googling all the things the doctors told us not to Google and counting on information to be our savior, Reuben and I decided that we could not think or strategize our way out of this diagnosis. We threw down our laptop or placed it gently because I'm not a savage. Um, we, we put the computer away and we decided to focus on what we knew to strip away all the extra stuff and come back to the basics, to actually come back to the first things. What did we know? We knew that our baby was alive. We had seen his heart beating. We knew that he was a gift to us. We knew that we weren't alone. And we knew that we were loved. And I'm sure part of you is thinking, how in all the world did that help? <laughs> and I don't know, but it did. It did because it helped us to stop trying to manage and control and learn everything. And it actually made us do something that I'd never expected. It made us invite God and God's people, you guys, the church, to come alongside us and to be a part of our journey. We knew that we could not do this alone, that we needed other people um, to help us remember those first things that I just listed. We knew that we needed other people for our daughter. You know, she was two and a half at the time, and we wanted her to feel loved and supported in the midst of all of the appointments and attention that her new baby brother and I was going to be getting. We needed prayer. 
And we needed to be treated normal, actually. We needed people who were going to just come alongside us and remind us that we were still us in a time that was so foreign and scary and strange. And despite the fear, I want to I let you know, despite the fear and the sadness and the odds, you know, Graydon, our son, he didn't end up with trisomy 13. And our family is actually convinced that that was an answer to prayer. All the indicators were that he was going to have that. And despite all of it, he didn't. And he, w- he was healed but not completely. <laughs> he was born with a cleft lip and palate and a couple other things like with his ears, but he, I think there's some pictures coming up. You know, he's endured over eight surgeries in his lifetime. Actually, he had three or four in his first year of life. And there are more that are going to go on into adulthood for him. I think there's one there. There's a picture of him on his birthday <laughs> and there's a picture of his first surgery. That's when they repaired his lip. And there's a picture there. Um, I think he was, oh my God, I think about that. I think he was eight years old, eight or nine. He had to have a bone graft and some bone removed from his hip. Overwhelm can still creep in, guys. It's, it's not perfect. But the amazing fruit that has been produced in both our kids is overwhelming. Actually, in me too. <laughs> you know, there's a joy and peace that I see in both Camille and Graydon with each other, with our family, and actually with you, with the, bro- the broader body of Christ as a result of um, this hard thing that we've gone through and continue to go through. You know, Gray wasn't miraculously healed, and Camille has had to endure a lot as a result as well, but they are healthy and strong and They're huge. Like, I have to look up to them both now, both figuratively and literally. I'm really grateful, actually. You know, one of the greatest lessons in our story that I hope you have kind of gleaned from this is actually also found in the passage that we read earlier today in a kind of unlikely place. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says the word, just in these couple of verses, verses, he says the word we more than three times. He's writing to a church, which is, like I said, not a building. It's a group of people. He uses the word share. You can't share by yourself. In other words, a key in all of this, what Paul was actually modeling without spelling out is something that Reuben and I found as well, that it was when we trusted others enough to show our struggles and our weakness and our fears that we were able to navigate the road ahead. We were able to remember the first things. Church, we're not meant to do this stuff on our own. Parenting is tough. (laughs) And I know you want to get it right. We want to help you with that here at The Well. It's why we have youth group and day camps and kids at the well classes and home groups. It's, it's to give you a place to share and to listen and to grow and to remind yourself of those first things, not only on Sundays when we gather, but through the week. It's why we're offering the Parent Summit. I mentioned it earlier, you know, this is um, a, a parenting kind of course that we're going to be offering over two nights. We're going to be wading through the complexity of parenting, focusing on the first things, on emotional and social and spiritual milestones that we want to um, help our kids establish and grow in. We're going to have large group teaching and then breakout rooms to be able to discuss with other parents. And it's free. So you should come. You can get all the information on our website. Um, it's on the 23rd and the 24th of March. We also do things like, 
like day camp. And I would actually ask you to like prioritize day camp. We're hopeful that we're going to be able to, to offer that this summer. I say hopeful because we need to hire a camp director. We're looking. Maybe you know someone, maybe it's you. You should contact me. We're going to be holding day camp hopefully in person for the first time in two years on August 8th to 12th. And so you can get more information from me. Um, and uh, But please put these things in your calendar. Things like youth events and day camps. Those are first things, guys. You know, the night before I was scheduled to go um, and give birth to Gray, we had a scheduled C-section because of it being a high-risk pregnancy. Um, something happened that I'll never forget. My husband Ruben was actually at the hospital with my sister because he was having severe back pain. So I was at home by myself with our, with our two-and-a-half-year-old, and I was scrambling to get ready for what was going to happen the next day. I was nervous and excited and worried and hopeful afraid. I was just overwhelmed. Actually, I had all the feelings and the doorbell rang. I went to the door and out there were about 20, maybe more people from our church, from the well. <laughs> it was freezing out there. It was like minus 35. So they came in quickly and they had just come to pray for me. I remember um, sitting in the middle of our family room and everyone all around me, it was packed actually. And they just prayed. I can actually see it. I wish I'd had a picture. Um, I can see it in my mind's eye because they prayed for, for our doctors. They prayed for our baby. They prayed for Reuben who wasn't there. They prayed for Camille, our daughter. We cried together and we laughed together. They weren't there for a long time. I don't think even Reuben managed to see them, to be honest. But I remember that as they prayed, I was reminded of the first things, those things I said, my baby was alive. I wasn't alone. I was loved. He was a gift. You know, guys, we aren't going to do this perfectly. <laughs> Whenever you have a group of people together, we are beautiful and broken, right? So we're going to do the best we can, but we're not going to parent perfectly. We're not going to support each other perfectly. Our church is a community of real people. And so at times we're going to mess this stuff up. But please don't shy away from inviting others into the messiness of your life, especially you parents. You don't have to do this alone. And especially as we re-enter a world that is reopening, please don't um, like succumb to the temptation of making decisions or ju judgment in the isolation that we were just never meant to live in. Remember that in the midst of all of the complexity, there are first things. And we're meant to help each other navigate them when it feels impossible. So as we close today, I just wanted to give you the space to give thanks to a God who has assured us that we're not alone. And he's merciful. In fact, he knows you're overwhelmed. And so he gave you the first things and he wants to help you with it. That our God is knowable and he is so much closer than you could ever imagine.